You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The English colony at Roanoke is one of the seminal pieces of American mythology. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got pirates. It's got plucky pioneers struggling to survive. It's got a fight against the British aristocracy. And of course, there's the horrific maltreatment of the Native Americans. Beyond that, it's just a good story. Which is why the story of Roanoke is so often used as fare for YouTube videos and poorly written magazine articles with titles like The Unsolved Mystery of America's First Colony, or at the other extreme, something like Secrets Revealed, What Really Happened at Roanoke? When, of course, the reality lies somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. We don't know what happened at Roanoke. We have very little data, and we have no conclusive evidence. But on the other hand, we definitely know what happened at Roanoke. Imagine that you came home one day, and you found a note on the fridge in your kid's handwriting that said, Grandma's house. You would know where the kids are. But that's not proof, of course. You could never really be sure they went to Grandma's house. Even if you got a call, from one of your friends saying, yep, they're at Grandma's house, I saw them there this morning. Well, you don't have evidence of that, you haven't seen it with your own eyes, so you can't ever really be sure. And of course, hard archaeological scientific data, that's the backbone of the study of history, for good reason. But we know what happened at Roanoke. The story I find really interesting is why there's still this idea of a mystery, why it pervades the story of Roanoke, why that's part of the American mythology, why we still have all of those cryptic headlines and mysterious titles intended simply to gin up interest in Roanoke and generate clicks for historical hacks on the internet. This is episode 151, The Lost Colony. In 1587, the Spanish Empire was really worried about the English colony on Virginia. At the very highest levels, they were worried. 
by which I mean the king, Philip II. And this wasn't some kind of ethereal concern about imperial sovereignty or their rights or the will of God. This was a very solid, tangible, real-world concern. And all of it was due to the threat of piracy. And that's a valid concern for the Spanish. The English were demonized by the Spanish as a nation of pirates. Elizabeth was the pirate queen, but the English absolutely deserved that characterization. Elizabeth was the pirate queen. The Spanish ambassador in London, which was, of course, a tense job even at the best of times, wrote to King Philip of English aspirations at their colony in Virginia. He said, quote, They have proposed that all pirates who are out of this kingdom... England, will be pardoned if they resort there, Virginia, and the place is so perfect, as they say, for piratical excursions that your majesty will not be able to bring silver from the Indies without finding a great obstacle there, and that they will ruin the trade of your majesty's vassals, for piracy is the purpose of their going there. End quote. And it was proposed at one point that the colony at Virginia be used as a prison colony for pirates. They didn't do that, not yet at least, but it was a terrifying prospect. These concerns were valid. The proof of that was already quite evident. Last time we talked about the action off the coast of Bermuda, in which Captain Richard Grinville, in his ship the Tiger, captured the flagship of the treasure fleet, the Santa Maria. That's the big one, that's the headline-grabbing story. But every voyage to and from Roanoke thus far in this story has involved at least a little piracy. When Walter Raleigh stopped off at Roanoke to negotiate a treaty with the Native Americans there back in 1584, he was on his way back to England after a voyage of piracy. That initial wave of colonists in 1585, we talked about them last time, well, they captured ships off the coast of Puerto Rico. And when Francis Drake rescued those same colonists, well, he was returning from a voyage of piracy. When Grinville, after taking the Santa Maria, returned back to Roanoke with 600 soldiers, there was piracy. I mean, it was happening all the time. The Spanish ambassador was 100% correct in his assessment, and the English crown didn't even have the shame to deny it. The abuse of the privateer system, of the letters of reprisal, well, that was obvious. But that's kind of the point here. When Queen Elizabeth and her top ambassadors consider punishing all of those pirates by relocating them to Virginia, and they do so in the hearing of the Spanish ambassador, they're doing that on purpose. That plan was a threat to King Philip. Now, there were English thinkers at the time that pretend otherwise. Richard Hakluyt, for example, was a proponent for agricultural colonization, and he wrote in tones of flabbergasted outrage, quote, Portugal and Spain account all other nations for pirates, rovers, and thieves which visit any heathen coast that they have sailed by or looked on. End quote. But of course, Portugal and Spain were right and they would be proved right time and time again in the coming years. By that point, of course, Jamaica would dwarf all other concerns, but until then, Virginia was the boogeyman. I wonder if the Spanish would have been heartened, or maybe even pushed to act, if they knew the kind of trouble that the English were having at their colony at Roanoke. 
You know, they built a fort and they put cannon emplacements there and they secured an alliance with the local Roanoke people, but all of that had fallen apart. The English killed the Roanoke chief. They cut off his head. Alliances don't tend to last when you display the head of the people with whom you are supposed to be allied outside the walls of your fort. And then, after all of that, another group of Algonquin people from the mainland attacked the soldiers that were left behind to guard that fort. And that is the very last word we have of Roanoke until 1587. Now, back in England, the investors in this venture were not excited about the prospect of returning. It took a lot of convincing, and a bit of bribery, and a ton of propaganda to convince those investors to return. Walter Raleigh himself was hesitant to sink yet more time and energy, and money and manpower, into the colony at Virginia. However, three Englishmen were very much interested. Richard Hacklute, John White, and Thomas Harriet. Now, Hacklute, of course, we know, and you'll remember John White from last time. He was a cartographer and artist on that first excursion to Roanoke. Thomas Harriet was on that initial expedition as well, and he wrote a pamphlet about the colony at Virginia. The historian Arthur Herman writes in his book To Rule the Waves, quote, Raleigh used Thomas Harriet's highly tarnished account of the Roanoke settlement, a brief and true report of the new-found land of Virginia, to drown out the critics and raise money for a second try. End quote. And that's true. That brief and true report contained about as much truth as a 1950s advertisement. You know, nine out of ten physicians recommend camel cigarettes and colonizing America. It was all propaganda. But it worked here, and in the few cases where it didn't work, a few well-placed bribes got the job done. Now, these weren't bags of coin we're talking about. We're talking about promises to minor noble families of land in the new colony and exclusive trading rights down the road. And let me tell you, those bribes were going to cause not a small amount of bloodshed and piracy down the road. However, Hacklute and White and Harriet, they had a more progressive view of the Virginia colony. They envisioned a proper colonial settlement, farmers and family and trade. They wanted something beyond the pirate port that someone like Raleigh envisioned. Now, they also intended to abandon Roanoke. They weren't going to attempt a settlement there. It was too dangerous at this point. Instead, they were going to build a new settlement at Chesapeake Bay, a city that would be called Raleigh. It was a far superior location to the Outer Banks, mostly due to the deep-water port they could build there. It would offer proper oceanic trade rather than shifting shoals which would sink ships. It also had the benefit of superior soil for raising crops in the surrounding countryside, now, John White was the key figure in this second attempt. He organized another crop of food and supplies and colonists. This time, though, that included women and children. One of those women was John White's own daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, Ananias Dare. To make everything that was to come even more tragic, Eleanor Dare was pregnant. And she wasn't the only pregnant woman on the voyage, either. 
You see, these colonists weren't a military detachment as the previous crop had been. They were families, middle-class families from London and Plymouth. They were just people looking for opportunity in the new world. And that's bold, even dangerous. See, a military detachment would be able to defend themselves against the Spanish, and they were technically building on Spanish territory. It was almost certain that at some point the Spanish would find them. But what kind of monsters would Spain be if they attacked a settlement that was almost entirely families, filled with women and children? And, were that to happen, what kind of retaliation would England be honor-bound to offer back? If the colonists get away with it, great, the English have a new colony in America, but if they don't, and Spain butchers all of those women and children or puts them in chains, well, then England would have a license, in the eyes of the international community, to declare war on Spain and unleash hell. They would have France and the Netherlands and probably Portugal and maybe Italy and parts of Germany on their side. It would have been quite a win. But of course, that's not what happened. The fleet consisted of three ships. The flagship Lion, which was technically captained by John White. He was the commander of this voyage. But it wasn't really under John White. The ship's master and Portuguese pilot, Simon Fernandes, was really in charge on board the Lion. And, in the eyes of the crew at least, John White was merely a passenger. Then there was a full-rigged pinnace under Edward Stafford. That's a ship that we might see as akin to a sloop of war. It's very similar to what a lot of pirate ships would look like, only this one had square rigging. It was small and sleek and filled with guns. That pinnace belonged to the Lion, and Edward Stafford was one of Simon Fernandez's men. And then there was a flyboat, under Captain Edward Spicer. Now, the flyboat was not associated with Simon Fernandez. It actually belonged to John White, which is important here. The voyage set out on the 8th of May, 1587, and made for Africa and then the West Indies. And, as has become customary on these voyages, they engaged in a bit of light piracy. While the colonists are on this voyage, though, I'd like to take a brief intermission to talk about Simon Fernandez and his infamous career. Fernandez was born in the Azores and trained at an illustrious Spanish naval institute. He trained to be a pilot and a petty officer. He wasn't nearly noble enough to be one of the higher-ups, but he was a skilled sailor and proved to be quite the leader of men. In fact, he served as a pilot on at least one Atlantic crossing of the Spanish treasure fleet back in the 1560s. But as ties between Portugal and Spain began to weaken, and as war eventually broke out between Portugal and Spain, Simon Fernandez left his Spanish service, and he sailed for England. There he joined forces with a Welsh pirate named John Callis. Now, Callis was never a privateer. He was always a pirate, and he liked it better that way. He wasn't terribly fond of the English crown, but he was smart enough to avoid attacking English shipping. Instead, he attacked almost exclusively Spanish ships and sold his cargo back in Wales. 
Together, John Callis and Simon Fernandez sailed up and down the Bay of Biscay, raiding any Spanish shipping they could find. They enriched a lot of Welsh businessmen in the process as well. They were popular back in Wales. Even though this was very much illegal, Elizabeth wasn't exactly inclined to work very hard at capturing pirates who operated against the Spanish. However, when the situation with Spain and England grew dire, Elizabeth had to do something. She had to deal with all of those pirates who infested her coasts. She sent a fleet out hunting, and even though it took some time, that fleet finally tracked the pirates down in 1576. Now they captured the swallow and arrested John Callis, but Simon Fernandez escaped. Callis attempted to argue his case, saying that he never worked against the English, and in fact, he would be willing to work for the crown. But those pleas fell on deaf ears. You know, he was the figurehead, he was the blackbeard of this pirate fleet. He had to be executed to show the Spanish exactly how serious the English were about the pirate menace. So Callis was hanged in Newport only a few weeks later. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time right from where you are. But Fernandez and the other remnants of that pirate fleet, well, Queen Elizabeth, or really more specifically Walsingham, had other ideas about them. When they were finally tracked down a few months later, in 1577, they were arrested. But instead of being executed, they were offered jobs. Fernandez and his crew worked for Sir Humphrey Gilbert, and later on for Walter Raleigh and even Richard Grenville. A few of them, at one point, sailed under Francis Drake. This crew of Simon Fernandez were involved in at least half a dozen major transatlantic privateering raids, the same Spanish ambassador that we quoted earlier wrote of Fernandez, quote, They are taking with them one Simon Fernandez, a Portuguese, a thorough-paced scoundrel who has given and is giving them much information about that coast, which he knows very well. End quote. As it turns out, privateering suited Simon Fernandez and his crew. They did very, very good work. They did so with royal approval, but... Well, look, if you train a wolf to hunt with you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've tamed the wolf. They're there for the meat, not for your company. So in a stroke of absolute brilliance, Walter Raleigh assigned this crew of famously murderous pirates turned privateers 
to ferry a bunch of women and children across the Atlantic. How exciting and profitable. I mean, this is a terrible job for a bunch of pirates. Still, though, the colonists did make it across the Atlantic safe and sound. The flyboat did get blown off course in a storm, but there was nothing that Simon Fernandez could do about that. The lion and the pinnace that sailed with it arrived at Roanoke on the 22nd of July, 1587. This stop at Roanoke was a planned stop. This wasn't going to be their home, but John White intended to go ashore to meet with those soldiers who were definitely still alive there and to inform them of the plan. Maybe he intended to take those soldiers along with him to the Chesapeake, or there's even some question as to whether the colonists intended to use Roanoke as a base, a place where they could stop while the rest of the ships went out looking for a proper place to colonize. Whatever the plan was, though, it really doesn't matter. John White disembarked the Lion and got on board the pinnace with forty of his men. They were just going to go ashore for their brief stop, but Captain Stafford of the pinnace informed John White that there had been a change in the plan. Simon Fernandez made the decision to drop them all off at Roanoke. Now, Fernandez wasn't a monster. His ships spent the day ferrying women and children and property and supplies and basically everything they owned over to the shores, but it was still an awful betrayal. His ships were supposed to stay there and help them found a settlement, and then, once they had done so, they were supposed to go back to England with news of, you know, where they were, and he was supposed to leave the pinnace just in case they all needed to escape. Instead, he dumped them all on Roanoke, and then he left. He sailed south down to the West Indies in search of easy riches in Spanish booty. Now, there are some records of Simon Fernandez's cruises in 1587, but nothing worth noting. And I'd like to characterize this as pirates doing pirate things. That's what you get when you employ a crew of murderous buccaneers. But there might be more to it than that. Back in London, there was this rift growing among Queen Elizabeth's gentlemen adventurers. Walter Raleigh, in particular, was not popular. It's possible, and it's been speculated by several reputable historians, that Simon Fernandez might have been paid to sabotage Raleigh's plan to colonize the Chesapeake. If he failed to do so in a timely manner, that means some of those other adventurers might get the opportunity. Of course, that's what happened, but we can't know whether or not Fernandez was in on it. When Fernandez and the other pirates finally left, Sixty colonists stood on the shore of a tiny island, across the ocean from their homes, with no way back. That's not a great situation, but there's a reason I called them plucky pioneers. They might not have a ship home, they might be living among people who really didn't like them, but they did have all of this food and all of these supplies, and once they found the fort there on Roanoke, and it was somewhere around there, they could reasonably expect to find those few soldiers had a garden going. You know, they might know where the best fishing spots and hunting grounds are, and, oh, by the way, they already had a fort. This all might just work out. The next morning, the colonists found the fort, Fort Lane, as it was known. 
but none of those dreams were realized. Fort Lane had been gutted. There were no homes inside, no warehouse, no smithy, no food, no people, just walls. The only sign they saw of any human life was a human skeleton, which was ominous. Now, most people in the years to follow have assumed that the skeleton belonged to the one soldier who was killed inside the fort during their battle. But then what about the survivors of that battle, the remaining 13? By the way, a seriously unlucky number to the English, especially English mariners. Well, these colonists didn't know what happened to those other 13, and neither do we, but it certainly looked like a bad omen. But then, a few days later, some very welcome good news arrived. The last ship in the fleet, that flyboat, arrived there at Roanoke, carrying the rest of the colonists, which does suggest that they knew the plan was to land at Roanoke, and perhaps that they did intend to stay there for a while. Now, everyone was happy to see one another, as well as happy to see the arrival of their ship. Unlike the other ships, this one, belonging to John White, was going to stick around. It was a very, very welcome piece of news. But it wasn't salvation. The flyboat could carry some of the colonists back across the ocean, but it was too small to carry everyone. And as the days passed, it began to look more and more like they might need a lifeboat. A few days after they arrived, the flyboat, I mean, a colonist named George Howe was out hunting crabs on the coast of the mainland across the water. While doing so, George Howe was killed by a human being. Governor White took all the right steps in the wake of such an event. As soon as everyone was settled, he sent some of his officers over to Croatan Island, just across the water, to investigate the murder, as well as to, you know, announce their presence and hopefully to negotiate a treaty. The Croatan explained that they were neither behind the attack on those 15 soldiers, nor were they behind George Howe's murder. Those who were behind those attacks were a coalition of shore-bound peoples who we've made reference to already. The negotiations between the Croatan and the English went well, and the Croatan promised peace, even friendship, but not an alliance. Their last alliance had ended poorly. Now, they weren't necessarily opposed to the idea, but they had to discuss it amongst themselves. Governor White agreed, and in good spirits he left Croatan Island, but then Governor White led a party of armed men to the mainland to attack those who had killed George Howe. It's debatable as to whether or not this was the right move. The logic behind it seems sound. They had proved their willingness to kill, but it appeared to be abandoned. Upon closer inspection, though, they did find a few men hiding out. I can see how it must have looked like an ambush at the time, and the English, thinking that was the case, killed them. The English attacked before dawn, and it was only later, in the full light of day, that John White realized his mistake. He wrote in his journal later that day, quote, We were deceived for the savages were our friends, end quote. Those they had killed were young Croatan men, little more than boys, really, that were searching the abandoned village for 
tools or food or whatever they could find there. See, the shorebound tribes had fled two or three days earlier because they feared the reprisal that would come for George Howe's death, which very likely wasn't murder, or at least not a premeditated murder. It's very likely, considering what a short amount of time the English had been there so far, that George Howe, surprised, as well as was surprised by, a Secotan man also out hunting crabs, who killed him out of fear. This was a series of disastrous accidents and killings that deteriorated relations between the English and the Native American population almost immediately. Things were looking grim for the Roanoke colonists. But then, a few weeks later, the colonists had their first happy news in some time. Eleanor Dare gave birth to a healthy baby girl. She was the first English child born on American soil, and the colonists named her Virginia. It's become a piece of American mythology. In fact, the county in which Roanoke resides is today called Dare County. However, their situation was still dire. The colonists there were trapped, essentially. They had their small flyboat, which could help a few of them escape, but not everyone. And they had no way to escape by land, since they were surrounded by peoples who wanted to kill them. They needed supplies, and they needed ships to take them away, and both of them they needed desperately. So the settlers urged John White to take the flyboat back to England and gather those necessities, to tell Walter Raleigh about their situation and about the pirate who had abandoned them. White, though, didn't want to do it. He didn't want to abandon his daughter and his granddaughter, and more than that, he worried that upon arriving in England, he would be branded a deserter. But Eleanor herself, his daughter, begged him to go, so John White eventually relented, and he departed for England on the 27th of August, 1587. And that's a significant date here. See, just about three months earlier, when John White was completely out of the loop, getting no news from the outside world, Sir Francis Drake sailed from England to Spain. He sailed on Cadiz, which is where Spain's biggest shipyards were, and he burned the Spanish fleet. Then he attacked several coastal forts and finally captured yet another Spanish treasure galleon. It was a major endeavor. It's known today as the singeing of the King of Spain's beard, and it signaled the outbreak of open naval hostilities between England and Spain. That's when the Spanish ordered all English ships in their ports captured. In the immediate aftermath, the rumors, and then eventually the news of a massing Spanish armada intended to invade, gripped the people of England. Elizabeth prudently announced a stay of shipping. She barred any ships that were suitable for the defense of England from leaving England. Her reasons were clear. She did so due to the, quote, invincible fleets made by the King of Spain for the invading of England, end quote. However, when John White arrived in Plymouth, he learned about this stay of shipping and learned that his ship was also included. He would have to stay, or at least his ship would have to stay. Now, Walter Raleigh did intercede with the Queen on behalf of John White and the Virginia colonists. He argued that they needed their help right now. But Queen Elizabeth denied his request, and personally I think she was right to do so. White, though, did manage to cobble together two ships that were deemed unsuitable 
for the defense of England, the Brave and the Roe. They embarked on a voyage to get back to the Roanoke colony with plenty of supplies and a way home. But, just outside of Morocco, those ships were intercepted by Sali rovers flying the Sali Rouge. That is, of course, a coalition of French and North African Barbary pirates who had no love for England. They stole all of the food and all of the powder and all of the shot aboard those ships, as well as their dignity. John White wrote that he was hit, quote, in the side of the buttock, end quote. They left them their vessels, but they were incapable of making it across the Atlantic now. White was forced to return to England and to wait until after the Spanish Armada had failed to land and that the threat of the Armada had finally abated. It was three years after leaving Roanoke in March of the year 1590 when John White finally departed England once again. Now his hopes were not high. He knew that the chances of the Roanoke colonists were low, and during the voyage he was halted over and over again. There were other attacks by foreign pirates, and there were attacks by his ships upon foreign shipping. But White did finally arrive at the Outer Banks, but his fears were realized. The fort, Fort Lane, and Roanoke Island were silent, desolate, completely abandoned. No English person knew about this at the time, but a Spanish naval squadron back in 1588, shortly before the attempted invasion, had been dispatched from San Augustine to look for the English pirate haven that had launched the attack on the Santa Maria. They searched the Chesapeake first because that's where any sensible person would place a fort, but they obviously didn't find anything. Then, though, they did stumble upon the fort at Roanoke. But even back in 1588, two years before John White arrived again, the fortress was abandoned. It appears that only a mere few months after arriving at Roanoke, those 115 colonists, or however many were left, disappeared. John White investigated, but found only two pieces of evidence— First, there was a relatively fresh set of footprints, but then there were these two cryptic messages which have fascinated and intrigued people on both sides of the Atlantic for centuries now. There were messages scrawled on two separate posts at opposite ends of the fort. On the first one were three letters, C-R-O, and on the other, a much more clear message. Croatoan. I wonder what it could all mean. A real mystery we have on our hands. Perhaps no one will ever be able to decipher these cryptic messages, except of course we know what it means, and John White knew what it meant at the time. See, he knew better than anyone what these messages meant, because he had developed a system of symbols to communicate should anything bad befall the colony. He knew he might not make it back before they had to leave. And one thing is very notable here. If the colonists were attacked or feared abduction or forced to leave by outside forces, they were to scratch a cross into those same two posts. But 
there was no cross, just the word Croatoan. White knew, as soon as he saw those letters, that his family, his daughter and his granddaughter, and all of the other colonists were at the Croatan village just across the bay. They'd left a note on the fridge telling him where they were, and they were telling him that they had left willingly. They were not forced out of their homes. This was, in John White's mind, excellent news. As soon as the sun rose, he intended to sail over there and rescue everyone. This was the best situation he could have hoped for. But then, in the night, their anchor cable broke. His ship was pushed away from shore by the wind, unable to return to American shores. John White never made it back to the colony at Roanoke, or indeed to America at all. He did publish a book of maps a few years later that would be useful to those who followed in the footsteps of the Roanoke colonists. Those maps were helpful, but none of them ever managed to decipher the mystery of the lost colony of Roanoke. But I've got the answer right here. In fact, it's quite simple. Sir Walter Raleigh was a liar and a scumbag. He made several trips across the Atlantic purportedly looking for the colonists, but, legally speaking, if he investigated and found what we all believe to be the truth, that the colonists had abandoned Roanoke, he would lose his rights to the Virginia colony. That's why those 15 soldiers had been left there years earlier. And if Raleigh investigated and found that all of the colonists were dead, he would also lose all of his rights to Virginia. If, however, he investigated, but all of his attempts to locate the colonists ended in mysterious, inconclusive circumstances, that would allow Sir Walter Raleigh to maintain his monopoly. Which is what happened. Of course, his monopoly would only last until 1603, at which point King James I threw Sir Walter Raleigh in prison for treason. And in the wake of his arrest and fall from honor, all of those other interested parties who were chomping at the bit to get a piece of that American land, well, the floodgates opened. Twenty years after our last records of the colonists at Roanoke end, a man named Christopher Newport would hear tales, while exploring the American mainland, of men in Native American villages wearing European clothes, of men who carried swords and even had guns living with some of the tribes in the region. And there were one people in the area who were noted for their occasional gray eyes and blonde hair and light skin. None of that is definitive proof of what may have happened to the Roanoke colonists. We don't have proof of anything, but, put all together, it does look very much that the colonists at Roanoke fled across the water to Croatan Island, where they were taken in. We can imagine, as did John White until his dying day, that Virginia Dare and all of the other colonists had the opportunity to grow up and live long and happy lives. Next time we're going to explore Virginia with Christopher Newport, but then we're going to introduce Jamestown 
and the Pirates of Chesapeake Bay. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, or signed up to support the show through the website, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, and everybody who has recommended this show, online or in real life, I couldn't do it without your help. Thank you. Our theme music is, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.